0: Well, it's good to see you guys. We're going to look at 1 Peter 3 today. And we're going to look at the, the complete victory of Jesus Christ at the cross. And the reason I thought it would be good for us to look at this today uh, is because we live in a time that it seems like everything is falling apart. We live in a time where, not only in our nation, but worldwide, evil is being called good, good is being called evil. Uh, our nation seems like it's beyond repair. Uh, Evil is rampant right now all around us and we see it. Uh, We see it in the news, we see it in the workplace, we see it in our families. I don't know how many conversations I've talked with people recently through either just sin or just the the culture and and people taking sides, It's just ripping families apart. These ideas and philosophies and practices that easily would have been identified as, as wicked, even demonic, 50, 75 years ago are now considered virtuous it's, it's the virtue of choice to murder children rampantly. It's the, the piety of environmentalism to, to worship this materialistic world and the creation rather than the creator. It's, it's, it's called uh, virtuous to adopt these deplorable ideas of sexual immorality and depravity that, that God exterminated Sodom and Gomorrah for years ago and warned us that those who indulge in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example of undergoing punishment of eternal fire, yet our culture even threatens people who don't adopt and believe in their depraved and despicable doctrines of sexuality and gender. And it seems like everything is just fallen apart around us. And as we look at it, especially through the limbs of Scripture, it's, it's hard for us to swallow. But as Christians... It's also the most wonderful place we could be. As Christians, it's one of the most wonderful times to exist and it's a wonderful gift to have the written word of God to guide us, to have the spirit of Christ to interpret his truth for us and to have the body of Christ to surround us in these times for our edification and our sanctification. And for us to remind one another that we must set our minds on things above and not things of this earth. And our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has already triumphed over sin and death and has proclaimed his victory to all spiritual beings and will return again and will reign. Sometimes, at least for me, and I I imagine for you as well, it is good to get out of the weeds and to look at the end and remember. What he has always proclaimed in his word, and to remind ourselves of who is the triumphant, victorious redeemer of man, and the one that will heal and and this 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 creation and reign forever as king. And then get back down in here and keep fighting and keep finding our brother and keep edifying one another. When things seem like they're falling apart, it's good to get out, to look at the end, to focus on Christ. To give us the strength and the courage, the comfort, the peace, uh, to to keep going, and to live on this earth in the way that, that that He calls us to. When we open the Living Word of God, we see the triumphant victory uh, victory of Jesus Christ from the beginning. To end, to the end. As soon as sin came into the world in Genesis three, the first thing God did was tell us that He's sending one to crush the head of the serpent, right? And then at the very end we see that, that Christ cast Satan into the lake of the eternal lake of fire for all eternity, and that's the end of Satan. That's the end of sin. That's the end of temptation and death. Jesus Christ is the victorious King, He is Lord, He is our Savior, and He has eternal victory and our victory over sin in this present world is in Christ and Christ alone. It's not our job to eradicate sin, and it's not our job to make sure that evil is, is done away with. That is his job, and he will do that. It's our job to trust him, to submit to him in this present world system, and to live faithfully and obediently to what he calls us to do in his word. Jesus is the triumphant, victorious redeemer of man, and we are victorious in him. So this morning, I want to look at a little piece of scripture that, that sometimes we, we read right over, and we miss the, the the glory of these verses. And like I said, I think it's good for us to look at the victory of Christ because it reorients us. It gets our bearings straight When we look at 1 Peter 3, it gives us the opportunity to recalibrate our spiritual bearings as we examine the triumphant victory of Jesus Christ and his proclamation of his victory to angelic majesties and to even demonic uh, beings. So open your Bibles to 1 Peter 3, if you haven't already. And while you're opening to 1 Peter 3, let me tell you a little bit about this letter. This letter was written to people who were suffering. This letter was written to a small remnant of Christians who knew Peter and were suffering in a world where they had been dispersed, they had been separated from uh, inheritance, from families, from church, from all things that belonged to them on this earth. Most of them had lost what they had worked for and now through the government uh, uh, pushing them out into Asia Minor, they, are, they have been scattered all over the place. And Peter's writing this letter to a scattered brethren who are, are, are looking at their circumstances. Not only have they been ripped out of family and home and things like that, but they've also, in the current culture they're in, they're not wanted. People don't want them there, and they're suffering in the workplace, they're suffering in their culture, they're suffering even in their families, and they're even experiencing suffering from fellow believers. They're in a dark and low place. And Peter writes this letter to them to remind them that this is the grace of God and they must stand firm and trust him. Don't trust in what your eyes see and the circumstances that you're in, but trust in Christ and in Christ alone. In fact, he tells them to arm themselves for death, prepare for death so that they would live their life for the will of God in the midst of suffering. Brothers and sisters, I think we need to hear this message. And I think First Peter is a very relevant letter to, to where we are heading in this nation and in this world uh, really, really quickly. So we want to follow the example of our ancestors in the faith as they follow the example of Jesus Christ. And if you look at this letter, the context of this letter as a whole, it helps us to understand what we're about to read this morning. So really quickly, let's look at what First Peter is all about. First thing, like I said, in First Peter, the Lord is reminding the recipients of this letter and Peter is shepherding Uh, uh, his children that have been scattered abroad to rejoice, to be thankful, to be prepared for suffering, to be submissive and to persevere to the very end. Those are the, those are key things that he says over and over and over. The whole letter is about suffering. But he doesn't tell them to huddle up in their Christian little Christian bubble and, and try to find some comfort and peace in, 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 in the familiarity of, of one another or something like that. He doesn't tell them to flee. He doesn't tell them to fight. He tells them to rejoice, to be thankful, to be prepared, to be submissive, and to persevere. And all of these things are grounded in the example of Jesus Christ and the power of Christ. They are to rejoice in their suffering because they have their hope fixed on Jesus Christ. And Jesus... Is the central, central theme throughout this whole letter that Peter keeps reminding them. Focus on him. Remember what he has done. Remember who he is. Remember how he suffered. Imitate his suffering over and over and over. Look at in chapter 1. In chapter 1, it says he tells them that Jesus foreknew them and he foreknew their circumstances. He tells them they've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He tells them that they have been born again, that they have been made new creations in Christ. He tells them that it is the Spirit of Christ that that is sanctifying them through their circumstances as they submit in obedience to him in this suffering. It is, uh, he tells them they have a salvation and an imperishable eternal reward that is reserved for them and they are protected by God. In other words, they must and will be victorious because of Christ who has ordained this circumstance and who will use this circumstance for their own sanctification Peter reminds them that is in this suffering, that this suffering that they're in is temporary and it is necessary. He reminds them that it is meant to refine them. It is meant to burn away the remnants of their old self. It is meant to burn away the remaining sin that is in them. It is meant to display the faith that he has put in them. In fact, that's what he says later. That it is this faith that is being revealed in them that is the salvation of their souls. And we have to remember that as well. If we have faith, that's a faith gifted to us by God himself through the work of Christ on the cross and suffering and persecution and loss and pain and things like that in this life are the circumstances God uses to reveal the faith that he has put in us. And as that faith is revealed, he is glorified for the work he is doing that no one could do on their own. And that is the gift that we have in him. So Peter then tells them, prepare your minds for action, the act of submitting while suffering, and to live holy lives, fearing God more than you fear man. And this is the will of God as we suffer. In chapter two, Peter reminds them of who they are in Christ, He reminds them, don't you know who you are in Christ if you are in Christ? He says that they are precious living stones being built into the temple of God. He tells them they are the church. They are the bride and body of Christ. They are a chosen family. They are priests sent by the king into this world to herald the message of the king and to proclaim his truth to this dark world. They are holy. They are set apart for God's purpose. They belong solely to God and they exist on this planet to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ and his glory and his gospel and his transformation of their very lives. That is their purpose in the midst of the suffering. That is why they've been scattered and that's why they are where they are. They exist on this earth to find the rest of their brethren, their brothers and sisters who are still in the darkness and to proclaim the excellencies of Christ and those who do belong to him will hear his voice and will come to him because he loses none of his sheep he goes on to remind them in chapter two and three to live holy lives and to live in submission as they suffer. And as their persecutors see their good works and as those who are inflicting the persecution and the suffering upon them see their excellent behavior, some of them will be convicted of their own sinfulness and unrighteousness and will repent and come to Christ. Not all of them, but some of those who persecute us Belong to Christ and have not come to Him yet. And we must remember that it is more important to submit to God and to trust our Father in the circumstance rather than try to fix the circumstance at the expense of ruining our testimony and turning people away from Jesus Christ. Some of the oppressors will, in fact, be born again, and it will be through the purity of their lives as they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ that they will come to the Lord. So Peter tells them to rejoice. Peter tells them to stand firm. Peter tells them to prepare their minds to suffer in submission and to sanctify Christ as Lord, which means purposefully and willfully, daily, recalling his authority and his commands and submitting to him. Jesus Christ is Lord, but we must sanctify Christ as Lord in our lives, realizing that we must enslave ourselves to Christ every day out of a love for him and a desire to please him as our Lord and master. They were called for this purpose and their circumstances are not wrong. Their circumstances are ordained. And Peter says, you exist to suffer and you exist to be an example of Christ while suffering. They are suffering in society, they are suffering at work, they are suffering at home, and they are suffering in the family, and they're even experiencing suffering from fellow believers that are persecuting them. And all of this is evident in the letter. It's coming on all fronts. And Peter says, perfect. Submit to the Lord, trust him, and trust yourselves to God like Christ did, and walk in holiness and submission in this life. And Jesus is the centerpiece of this letter. He is the example. He's the one that gave him new life. He's the precious spotless lamb. This has always been his foreordained plan. He is the chosen cornerstone, the head of the church, the model, the standard, the perfect sinless example of submissive suffering and of trusting God, and he's the example of joy while experiencing, experiencing immeasurable suffering. He is the triumphant conqueror who proved his victory over sin and death through his resurrection and exaltation, and he's the example of their own foreordained victory. Those who suffer with him, with him will be exalted together with him. And it's in that context that we read these verses. So read with me because all that makes this so much greater and this is such good stuff. This is gold. Look at 3.18. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. He says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, For this purpose, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. I'm going to stop there. I went too far in the first service. We didn't have time. <laughs> We're going to stop there and, uh, and, and just look at this. There, there's, there's gold in here. And there's things here that we would have no idea ever occurred uh, except for the fact that Peter reveals them right here. The Lord revealed them to Peter. Whether that was... During those 40 days of, after his uh, resurrection, before his ascension, or this is something that, that God told Peter and inspired Peter to write down, there's something here that is precious and wonderful and brings us joy in the midst of suffering as we examine the triumphant, victorious proclamation uh, of Jesus Christ. But so these are also some very interesting and hard words. If you look at it in the Greek, this is hard Greek stuff. I'm not a Greek scholar. This is hard Greek stuff, uh, and uh, the way it's worded, and the fact that you're dealing with supernatural stuff here, this is th- this is hard translation. And uh, but I don't think it makes it um, uh, hard to. To understand. I don't think it makes it hard to, to comprehend. It's just to say, if you read a commentators on this, these verses, you get a lot of stuff. In fact, many interpreters have taken these verses and come up with some crazy outlandish stories that create many more problems with other parts of scripture. And it's like, if you can just look at this in the context and read it for what it says, it makes a lot of sense. But there's been people that have taken these verses and made it mean a lot of stuff. Everything from Jesus suffering in hell to pay for our sin, which does not happen and it does not fit with the rest of the narrative of the Bible, everything from Jesus saving people from hell by pre- preaching the gospel, Jesus giving believers or unbelievers in hell a second chance for salvation, Jesus preaching through Noah to people that were lived before the flood, or even going into the next verse that water baptism is essential for the salvation of your soul, which makes no sense. And in fact, actually, it's in the it's in the text. Let's just nail that down real quick. Look at this, verse twenty one, corresponding to that baptism now saves you. There's no period there. There's an explanation right after it, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. In other words, not water baptism, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God. So, it's not water baptism that saves you. It's Christ that saves you. Period. That's, it's that simple. It explains it in the verse itself. But that's not what we're talking about today, and I need to stick to notes. So, coming back to this. I think the confusion of all of this stuff comes from, like I said, maybe a lack of understanding of the Scriptures in whole, or maybe a lack of belief in the content. Because there's some stuff in these verses that causes you to go, what is he talking about? One of the things that almost everyone does agree on is this though, that Jesus Christ suffered unjust evil and he was completely victorious over sin and death. And that is a no brainer. So this morning we're going to look at the victory of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at this, the eternal champion of God who has conquered sin and death and Satan and hell through his suffering on the cross, the triumphant king Who heralds his own victorious message to powers and authorities that have been held in the darkness of hell and were unable to witness the glory of what happened at the cross? This is the context. So don't forget the context because, like I said, the story gets a little weird and it gets very interesting. And it's easy to get into that part of it and forget the fact that this is about the triumph of Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at the letter, there's four up to this point, four major emphasis on Jesus Christ. The first one comes in one nineteen through 21, where you see that Christ was known before the foundation of the world and that he is the spotless lamb who died for sinners. Then you see in 2, 6 through 8, that Jesus Christ is the precious cornerstone that God has chosen, that has been rejected uh, by the religious leaders, but he is the foundation of the church. And then in two twenty one you see that Jesus Christ is the example of suffering. He is the perfect suffering servant who committed no sin. There was no deceit in his mouth. He did not revile in return. He did not utter threats while suffering, but he entrusted himself to his father and he laid down his life willingly to bear our sins in his body on the cross. He is the suffering servant. And then here in 318 through 22, you see Jesus Christ is the triumphant victorious king who has authority over sin, authority over Satan, and authority over death. So in 318, we get our first point that Jesus Christ or the the, the powerful victory, we see the powerful victory of Christ over sin. The powerful victory of Christ over sin. He says here, for Christ also died for sins once for all, The just for the unjust with a purpose clause here so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit the Greek here reads at the beginning, for also Christ once uh, for sin suffered. And I think this is good to understand because when he says once for all here, this is a one word that means once for all time. It's not once for every person, not once for all people, but once for all time. It was a one-time solidary event that happened one time that accomplished eternal things. Does that make sense? A one-time event. It's the same thing that Hebrews talks about in Hebrews 9 and 10. In Hebrews 9, 11 through 12, it says, when Christ, appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. He entered through the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. And then it says this, he entered the holy place once for all, once for all time, having obtained eternal redemption. A one-time suffering, a one-time payment, a one-time event caused eternal redemption. In Hebrews 9, 28, it says, Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So a one-time sacrifice caused perfect victory over sin. Hebrews 10, 12 through 14 says it this way. He, Jesus Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, set down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's what Peter's saying here. Peter is saying Christ died for sins once for all time. It's done. The victory is complete. What he accomplished on the cross has eternal redemption. What he accomplished on the cross sanctifies us from our sinfulness once for all. He died here, it says, for uh, once for all. And the word died here actually is the word suffered, which is good to see because this word is, is said over and over and over and over in First Peter. Uh, out of the, the the 42 times this word is used in the New Testament, this is the only time that's translated died. If you have the NASB, it, it, called, it says that he died for our sins. And suffering is a major theme in 1 Peter. There's always an emphasis on suffering, but the sufferings of Christ and, and how Christ suffered so that the Christians could follow his example of suffering. I can't read all these, but in 1 Peter 1, 11, 2, 19, 2, 20, 21, 23, chapter 3, 14, 17, chapter 4, verse 1, 13, 15 through 16, and 19, chapter 5, 1, chapter 5, 9, and 10, over and over and over, you see them talking about suffering. Christ has suffered in the flesh. He was the one that suffered. You share in the sufferings of Christ. Make sure you suffer as a Christian. Uh, Christ was the one that suffered for you. It's the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow uh, that are our joy. That we're called to suffer according to the will of God. That we witness the sufferings of Christ. That, that um, uh, after, uh, uh, but stand firm in the faith understand the experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren all throughout the world and then finally in 5.10 this is one of the best ones he says after you have suffered Christians for a little while so there's, this is, there's a time I mean we don't, we don't suffer forever after you've suffered for a little while the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect confirm strengthen and establish you he ends the letter with that this suffering is temporary and it's only for a little while it ends with death. You only suffer until you die. And that's the end of suffering for the Christian. And at your death, he will perfect, confirm, and strengthen, and establish you for all eternity. So prepare yourself. Prepare yourself, arm yourself for death, so that you live right for Christ in this life. This suffering suffering is temporary, and it's only for a little while. And he goes on to say that the just suffered for the unjust, basically the, the sinless Christ suffered so that we could have salvation. Jesus Christ was victorious through his suffering and his suffering brings our salvation. We are led to victory through his victory. Our suffering only produces victory because of what he suffered and the victory that he accomplished on the cross. Does that make sense? Our suffering is victorious only through his suffering. And think about that. The worst they can do in this life is kill us, right? And what does killing do? It takes us directly home to him, right? When we die, that's immediate sanctification, immediate glorification. Immediately we are in the presence of Christ for all eternity. We are at rest and there is no more fight. There is no more sin. There is no more indwelling battle. We are glorified together with our Lord and Savior. So the worst they can do is that. So so prepare and live for Christ. That's what he's saying. But he says all of this, Christ did all of this. He he died once for all, the just for the unjust, and then he gives us the purpose so that he might bring us to God. This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is why Christ died for us. The purpose of the unjust suffering of Christ or the just suffering for the unjust is so that he might bring us to God. To bring to God, it means to lead forth, to bring into the presence. This is a way to describe reconciliation between sinners and a holy God. And it's only, only possible through what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Romans 5.10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That's the only way. Not through your church attendance, not through your good works, not through your confessions, not through anything that you can produce, but we can be reconciled to God only through the death of his son. Second Corinthians five talks about the same thing. He says, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. The only way. For unholy, unrighteous, sinful people like you and me to ever approach a holy and perfect God is through Christ, through the blood of Christ. Our good works will not get us there. Magical prayers will not get you there. Even your faith will not get you there. It must be the faith that he puts within all of his children. And that is the only faith that works. The faith that he instills within us. Christ's powerful victory over sin is our victory, and we have victory in him and in him alone because of what he accomplished on the cross. This is the powerful victory of Jesus Christ over sin. And that leads us to the next point. He has victory, it was accomplished at the cross. This is our joy, and this is his joy. But what he did next is super cool. Look at the next verse, verse 18. And this is the proclamation of that victory by Christ in hell. He says, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. The proclamation of the victory of Christ or by Christ in hell. Like I said, this is something that we would have no idea even occurred if it weren't for Peter writing it down, if it weren't for Christ relaying this information to Peter, but this is gold that brings us joy and assurance that Jesus Christ is the triumphant, victorious Redeemer of man. Jesus Christ did visit hell after his death and before his resurrection, but not to suffer. That was complete at the cross he wasn't sent there by his father for more punishment or anything like that. He went willingly and he went in and he came out because only Jesus Christ has the ability and authority to do that. He is the authority over hell and he holds the disobedient in hell, reserving them for his own judgment at the great white throne. In fact, It's not like the cartoons or the Catholic version of hell where, you know, Satan is the king of hell and all the demons are down there. This is the last place that Satan or the demons want to be. Hell, Jesus Christ is the king of hell, if you want to say it that way. He is the one. He is the one that holds the keys to hell. And he is the one that holds captives in hell to await the final judgment by his own mouth. Jesus Christ is the authority and hell is the eternal wrath of God. Hell is the wrath of Christ being poured out on those who are held captive until the last day. And Christ went into this place and he proclaimed his victory to those who would never have been able to witness what just happened at the cross. So I think there's five questions to ask ourselves here. Five questions that the text reveals to us that gives us insight into what happened here. First, when did Christ go? What did Christ do? Who did Christ visit? Where did Christ go? And why were those people there? Why were those things there? If you want to say that way. First, when did he go? It answers it right out the gate. It says, uh, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Having been put to death in the flesh just means after his physical death, but made alive in the spirit. This is saying that this is what he did in His Spirit before His resurrection, I think if this happened after the resurrection, it would say having put to death in the flesh and made alive to, again in the flesh, because that's what the resurrection was. Jesus Christ is the first example of a resurrected body that never dies again. Right? Only Christ has been made alive in the flesh, now reconciled together with uh, with with the Spirit for all eternity. Even others that were raised from the dead, Lazarus and and uh, it was a little dude that fell out the window, and Paul raised him from the dead. Eutychus, I think I can't remember his name, and some uh, I think Ezekiel did it too. Not too many people rise from the dead, but all those people died again. But, but for Jesus... He has risen, and he has a body that will not die. He's the first example of that. But the way that the text reads, I think this is not what it is. I think it is saying that after his physical death, before his resurrection, and this is what we say about ourselves, right? When we die, our body lays here and, and, and decomposes, but our spirit is together with God. We're still alive. We haven't died. Um, and then one day in the future, when Christ returns, our body will be reunited with our spirit, and we will live both body and soul eternally with Christ on earth, uh, forever but Christ was the first example of that but he had a a sermon to preach before that resurrection on the first Easter Sunday so what did he do it says here that he went and he made proclamation. Two verbs. The first, he went, which means it means to go to travel from one place to another. This isn't some sort of dream, some sort of uh, spiritual, mystical thing. This is Christ who went to an actual place. Actually, John MacArthur says it this way. He purposefully went to an actual place to make a triumphant announcement to captives being, uh, captive beings before he arose on the third day. So he went there and then he proclaimed. It's the same word used over and over and over in the New Testament, to preach, to proclaim, or to herald. He went to preach, he went to proclaim, he went to herald a message. That's what Christ went to hell to do. One commentator called this Jesus Christ triumphant sermon. This is his triumphant sermon. I think it went something like this. He went to those who would not have been able to witness what just happened at the cross, and he went to tell them that the work is done, I drank the full cup of my father's wrath down to the dregs and all of my children are now redeemed. I have all authority given to me by my father and I have complete victory over sin and death. And I imagine this is Brian's imagination. He said something to the effect of, and now I'm gonna go and physically rise from the dead and prove to every created being that I am the one that holds all authority and all power over all evil and sin, including you. And I'll see you at the great white throne. Something like that. Amen. He proclaimed his own victory to those who could not witness his work on the cross. And he is the triumphant, victorious redeemer of man. Remember that. That's the point. And we need to hear that. So who did he visit? Says the spirits now in prison. The spirits in the plural is always referring to angels or demons. There's only a few exceptions in the New Testament where the the plural word spirit or spirits refers to anything else. Four times, three in 1 Corinthians, one in Revelation, does it refer to a multitude of spiritual gifts, so it uses the plural to talk about spiritual gifts. And the only other time is four times in Revelation when Revelation talks about the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits of God, so it uses the plural, Um, other than that, every time it uses the word spirits, it's always talking about spiritual beings, angels, or demons. So when he goes to talk to the spirits that are in prison, we're not talking about souls. We're not talking about people. This word is never ascribed to people. This is talking about demons. And and in fact, I think in the near context, you can see in verse 22, chapter three, verse 22, it says after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. He's going to proclaim the victory that he has both over sin and death and them. So he visits spirits currently in prison. And I think that answers the next question. Where did he go? He went to prison. What is prison? Prison is just another term for hell, for the abyss, for the eternal fire, for the bottomless pit. It's something that's used uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, Matthew twenty five forty one, I think explains hell very clearly. Jesus Christ says that hell has been, pre- actually, let me just read it. It says, um, he says, it's talking about judgment. He says that he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the description of hell. It's a place of eternal fire prepared for Satan and for his followers. In Revelation 20, I think you get a picture of exactly what hell was prepared for. Not only is it a place right now where souls are kept captive until the day of judgment. And some of these demons are already in there until the day of judgment. But purposefully, for a thousand year period in Revelation 20, you see exactly why hell was prepared. In Revelation 21 through 3 and then in 7 through 8, it says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key to the abyss, a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and he shut and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand Years were completed. So in other words, when Satan is put into hell, he has no ability to deceive the nations, to influence the nations, to cause the, 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 the doctrines of demons and the world system and all the things that you see presently at work right now that are under his power and control. He has no capability of doing that because he's bound in hell unable to influence the world. It says, but after these things, he must be released for a short time. Now in verse seven, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, there it is, and will come out and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, which is the end battle described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. But the point is, is when Satan is in hell and when demons are in hell, they have no influence on the earth. They have no ability to do what they always do. Their evil is, 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 uh, is, is held captive in hell and Christ is the one that keeps them bound there. In Luke 8 and in Matthew 8, you see Jesus interact with the demoniac and both times these demons have some awareness that some of their fellow brethren, if you want to say it that way, have already been cast into the abyss. They, because that's what they beg Jesus not to do. When he meets the demoniac that's full of many demons, they call themselves legion, they beg Jesus, and they say, not, uh, not to command them to go into the abyss. So they understand, if he commands, they must do, and if he says go to the abyss, they must go, which I think tells you that they've watched it happen before. They've watched Christ command some of them to go into the abyss, and they have been there ever since, unable to influence this world. And in fact, in Matthew 8, 29, the same story told from Matthew's angle, he the, the demons say, have you come to torment us before the time? I think demons know the appointed time of their eternal judgment. Demons know the appointed time of their thousand year prison sentence during the millennial reign of Christ. They understand those things and they ask Jesus, have you come to put us in the abyss before that appointed time? Have you come to torment us in the abyss before that appointed time? And Jesus cast them into the pigs. They're still roaming the earth, seeking those to devour, just like every other demon and like Satan. So all that being said, Christ visited this place where demons can be commanded to go and held captive with no ability to influence the earth, awaiting the final eternal judgment of God, Christ went there and proclaimed his victory to the spirits that were in prison. So why are these spirits in prison? I think it answers it again in the verse. It says, these spirits who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. In other words, these demons are in hell because of something that they did during the, the right before the flood. In Genesis six, one through four. Demons are always disobedient. There were certain demons who were more disobedient. Their rebellion went too far, and Christ said enough. And not only did he judge them before the appointed time, but he also destroyed the earth for the first time in the flood. He's already sentenced them to hell, and they await their final judgment. And the answer is in Genesis 6. But before we look at Genesis 6, which we will, look at 2 Peter 2, 4 through 10. 1 Peter and 2 Peter were written by the same dude, Peter. And uh, they were written about the same time. And Jude was also written about the same time. And you see something in all three of these letters that gives you an understanding, not only of what, how Peter read Genesis 6, but of how God interpreted Genesis 6 because it's in the inspired, inerrant word of God, this interpretation. So Peter is talking about the spirits that were imprisoned during the days of Noah when the patience of God kept waiting before the flood. And then in 2 Peter 2, 4 through 10, you see Peter say the same thing in another letter. Uh, the problem in 2 Peter is you got people coming to the church, they're secretly introducing destructive heresies, and their judgment, Peter says, from long ago is not idle, their destruction is not asleep. In other words, God's already carved out a place for them, and their judgment is coming, all right? Because you don't uh, go against the authority of God and come into his church and preach something to his people that's going to cause them to not believe in him. That's a big deal for God. That's a terrifying thing for a preacher. You stand up and say, God said this, right? Because if God didn't, then i got to stand before him one day and answer for that, you know? And there, but then there's people all over the world that fill pulpits and tell you that God said something that he never said, and that's what's happening in Second Peter. And then, Peter gives two examples of God's judgment and how God judges those who revile authority and who engage in immorality and how God saves his people. The first time is in the flood with Noah. Look at verse 4 and 5. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness were reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the uh, the world of the ungodly. So look at this. Both time, like, Every time the, the flood is mentioned or this time is mentioned, these angels are also mentioned. And there there's a judgment for the disobedient angels casting them in hell. There's a judgment of the ancient world being destroyed by the flood. And there's the rescuing of eight people, Noah, through the ark that God told him to build. So God rescued Noah through the one boat that would make it through the flood. And then the next thing, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, verse six through eight. It says, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made it an example of Sodom and Gomorrah to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if you rescued Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, and it goes on to talk about that. So the point of 6 through 8 is to say that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah for their rampant sexual immorality uh, and, their, and their, um, uh, their, their behavior there. And, and, and he set an example for every future generation of his eternal wrath and fire that he would pour out on those who, who do this. And he rescued Lot, who was righteous, out of this. Then the point of Second Peter is this. Verse nine, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So he's showing both angels in hell Both the old world that he destroyed in the flood, both Sodom and Gomorrah, God can save the righteous and he can keep the rest under judgment until the day of judgment to the great white throne. That's easy for God. This is what God does. And he says the two big things here, they indulge the flesh with his corrupt desires and they despise authority. God always rescues his children who submit to his authority. God always judges the unrighteous who despise his authority. Jude is the same thing. Jude 1, 4 through 7. If you want to flip over a couple of books to Jude, it's super short. But Jude has the same problem. There's people coming into the church and they are they, are, um, they come in and notice they're turning the, the grace of God into licentiousness and they're denying their master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jude gives three examples. The first being the Israelites who God delivered out of Egypt and then destroyed in the desert. He says, I desire to remind you Um, uh, though, you know, all these things once for all that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So God saved the Israelites with his arm through his miracles and signs and wonders. And then God judged the unbelieving, grumbling, complaining, rebellious Israelites who despised his authority and his commands out in the desert. Then he goes on to talk about Noah. Uh, or, or that what happened during the time of Noah. And he says, "An angels who did not keep their own ob- domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So there's a judgment for these disobedient angels. And he defines their disobedience here, which gives us some insight. They, they did not keep their own domain. They abandoned their proper abode. And then in verse seven, he gives a further description of what these angels did or what these demons did. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, Uh, And the cities around them, since in the same way, both Sodom and Gomorrah and these angels indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh and now are exhibited as, as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So in the same way as Sodom and Gomorrah, these angels indulge in gross immorality, sexual immorality. The word here is porneia, which we get our word pornography from. And went after strange flesh, which in Sodom and Gomorrah was homosexuality. And, and this example we'll see soon is, is something even more perverted and sick and evil. But both are given as examples of judgment. So we see in First Peter, Second Peter, and in Jude, an understanding of Genesis 1 through 6, where angels transgress some boundary God had made, indulge in sexual immorality uh, with, with women at the time, and, and God judged them prematurely, not prematurely, because God does nothing prematurely, but before the appointed time of the very end. Now, this is neat, and I think we have time. All right, There's another book called the Book of Enoch, which is not... A canonical book. It was written in Aramaic during the Second Temple period, during the inter- Intertestamental period, that 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. This book was written uh, by Jewish scholars. But the thing is, is Jude actually quotes the Book of Enoch word for word in the in the, in the the letter that Jude wrote. That doesn't mean that the book of Enoch is inspired or anything like that, but it does show us that Jude understood it and it shows us that the interpretation of Genesis one through six that the book of Enoch talks about uh, was understood at least by Jude and Peter to be correct. And the fact that God put first Peter, second Peter and Jude in scripture shows that their interpretation is inerrant. Again, has nothing to do with the book of Enoch. It's just a book and it's not inspired but it gives us some historical understanding of how a Jew of the day would have read Genesis 1 through 6. So, Peter and Jude probably were aware of this book. Jude had to be, because he quotes it. Enoch is 108 chapters. The first 21 chapters, this is interesting, are dedicated solely to explaining Genesis 1 through 6. All right? I'm sorry, Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Four verses in Genesis. And it's very clear in the book of Enoch that the Jewish scribes and scholars of that day were aware of the supernatural story that we just talked about. They had a very clear understanding that Genesis 6, 1 through 4 was talking about angels who had sexually immoral relationships with women and had been cast into hell because for many, many pages, it talks about it. And it it talks about conversations that these angels had, conversations that these demons had with one another. And Enoch embellishes this story. He documents conversations that, again, are not scriptural and are are not in there. But the point is, is the interpretation of that day was that these demons lusted after women. It says 200 of these fallen angels bound themselves together with a curse to choose women to be their wives and to have offspring with them. They produced uh, demonic offspring, the giants, the Nephilim, who were hostile towards mankind. They were at war with mankind, and these demons also introduced demonic rituals, cultic practices, teaching enchantments, astrology, worship of the earth, worship of the skies and their signs, what we would call new age environmentalism, and then in Enoch 9, 8 through 9, it says these demonic beings, having gone to the daughters of men upon the earth, and slept with the women, and defiled themselves, and revealed to them all kinds of sins, and the women bore giants, the whole earth has therefore been filled with the blood of unrighteousness, and this brought about the judgment of God in the flood, all right? Now, again, the book of Enoch is not inspired. There's all kinds of things wrong with it. But it does show us that this is how a Jewish person would have read Genesis 1 through 6, and even Peter and Jude agreed with an interpretation that there were angelic authorities that somehow married women at the time, and created evil offspring, and this is part of the judgment of God. And it was so wicked, and beyond the bounds of what God had declared, so bad that God bound these demons in hell already, and they await the day of judgment. So let's read Genesis now. Genesis 6, 1 through 4. It says, now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whoever they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men of old, uh, the men of renown. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. From man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is a sad, sad, sad story. Evil, had gotten so rampant on the earth, both mankind and angelic powers were were going against the, despising the authority of God, going after evil, immoral behavior, fulfilling the desires of their flesh, and evil had gotten so bad that God destroyed his creation. Sons of God always refers to angels in the Old Testament. Every time... These were the sons of God are mentioned in the Old Testament. Job 1, 6, 2, 1, Job 38, 7, Psalm 29, 1, Psalm 89, 6. Every time it refers to angels. These demonic angels, if you put 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Jude, and Genesis together, left their domain, did not stay in their proper abode, must have possessed humans and procreated with women. We don't know why it's possibly to contaminate or corrupt the human race. Maybe to prevent the redemption of mankind by introducing demonic offspring or something like that to either corrupt through mind and philosophy or to corrupt physically. I don't know. I mean, Satan would have known about the promised seed that's coming from the line of Eve to crush his head. He's always trying to stop that from happening. Um, So whatever it may be, uh, this was an evil beyond what God uh, desired and God destroyed the earth because of it. it you know, you, you think of like, why would someone want to do this? Because it was consensual union. Uh, but, but think about even our world right now. Mankind is always looking for transen, uh, transcendent experiences, life over death, spiritual ascendancy, exaltation. Many pagan religions include sexual deviation to attain higher levels of existence and spirituality. We have drugs, orgies, pornography, religions that promote sexual promiscuity and sexual evil. Whatever it was, it's not hard for us to imagine that that men or that women would want to engage in deviant sexual experiences in order to transcend boundaries and identities and patterns that God has established. I mean, you see that at play right now around our, our world. People trying to, 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 to engage in some sexually immoral behavior to, to transgress boundaries and, 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 and uh, uh, patterns that God has established, whatever it may be. Our culture is not far from this. Our world is not much different than this. But what Peter is trying to say and what we see throughout the word of God is no matter how evil and how dark and how depraved, how sexually deviant and immoral culture may be, God always reserves those who despise his authority and go against him for his judgment and he always rescues his children So in the midst of the darkness, you got to get out and look at the end and look at Christ who has victory over sin, Christ, who has proclaimed that victory over these angels that did this in the first, the first thousand years of creation, Christ. And they, they saw him and they heard his voice as he proclaimed his victory. And they're going to hear his voice again at the great white throne of judgment. And the, and, and, and the hope is that none of you will be there together with him, with them that you will know him as Lord and Savior here, that you will have victory over sin and death through the victory that Christ had on the cross so that you will never, ever have to hear the voice that they heard in hell and, and hear it at the great white throne of judgment when Christ judges all of those who join in their rebellion. These demons who despise authority during the time of Noah and, and sinned and left their own domain and went after strange flesh, indulging in sexual immorality with women and had offspring that were evil, possibly to corrupt the human race. All of these God has already cast into the pit of hell and he keeps them under the eternal bonds in the pit of darkness reserved for his punishment on the great day of judgment. And Peter is basically saying, things have gotten really, really, really bad before. And the people that were reading this letter they weren't quite there yet. And you and me, we're not quite there yet. But even when it got that dark, God still rescued everyone who belonged to him. He got them on that boat and he took care of them. And he rescues all of his children in the midst of the darkness. But we trust in him and him alone. And we got to remember who is the triumphant, victorious redeemer of man. It's Jesus Christ. He, 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 Uh, he accomplished that victory on the cross during, after his death, before his resurrection, he proclaimed that victory to those who are in prison and he will return again and reign as King forever. All authority belongs to Jesus Christ. He has conquered all the demonic forces behind the unrighteous people, inflicting suffering on Christians. He has proven willing even to cast spiritual deviance into hell before judgment to save his people. Jesus Christ visited these demons to proclaim his victory and he will see them again to cast them into the eternal lake of fire. He has already triumphed over the most evil forces of the spiritual world and the physical world and it's not hard for him. So our job is to entrust ourselves to our faithful creator, to submit ourselves to him and to obey his word while suffering, to understand that our job on this earth is not to end suffering but to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are in the darkness who may even be causing our suffering so that we call all of those who belong to him out of the darkness into his marvelous light and then to remind each other to to. to fix our mind on things above, not on things of this earth, to focus on Jesus Christ and to live in holiness and righteousness in this life so that we do all things for his glory. He has overcome the world and all those who are with him will overcome the world. We must trust our father. We are the overcomers. Let me end with 1 John 5, 1 through 5. First John says this, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes this world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one that overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Things may be dark around us, but who cares? We have the light of Christ. So live in submission to him. Live holy lives. Focus your mind on the victory of Jesus Christ at the cross and the coming victory when he returns. And then then go proclaim the gospel even to those who hate you and edify your brethren so that we remain faithful in this life and glorify him with every thought, every word, every action. We need to hear this. Arm yourself for death so that you live the rest of your life, not for yourself, but for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for even, even in this, this tiny little story, not only do we see the victory of Christ on the cross, but we see Christ proclaim his victory to some of the most evil and deviant demonic powers that have ever existed. And there is nothing that Satan or any demonic force or any force on this earth can do to stop Christ. There's nothing that can separate God's children from his love. There's nothing and no one that can snatch the sheep of God out of the hands of the shepherd that holds them. There is nothing that can separate us from him. So Father, help us to stand firm to see that this is the true grace of God, help us to stay focused, to not get caught up in all the the ideas and philosophies and evil things of this world that that, that distract us and keep us from preaching the truth of Jesus Christ and keep us faithful to him. Help us to, to, to fix our eyes on the triumphant, victorious redeemer of mankind, Jesus Christ, and help us to imitate him in our suffering and entrust ourselves to our Father and submit to him and suffer and die and, and and go be with him. Lord, give us strength to suffer in this life and to imitate Christ. We pray all this in your heavenly name, amen.